The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. India was once a great power. I intend to see her become so again. <laughs> you are surprised, Mr. Viking, at the sight of my other face? Yes. Yes, I am. Like all new countries, India is made up of many factions. Some believe the people should rule. There are others, however, who think that they should be ruled. We are few. But we are, shall I say, strong? But to throw your country into war, it, it means destruction, famine. <laughs> Life is of no consequence to me, Mr. Viking, as you will learn. You're insane. Perhaps. Perhaps it is an occupational disease among the very ambitious Mr. Viking. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 8th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. So, are they all nuts? Are the very ambitious to the extent that they are instituting fascism, crazy, evil, both, or none of the above? Let's consider those possibilities, shall we? And we'll do exactly that following our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. You know, Robert, what is particularly striking about our show opener today, taken from the 1952 movie The Last Train from Bombay, is how well understood and accurately portrayed the intellectual and moral state of what we've been calling the elite has been in our culture and in our history and even in our entertainment. It strikes me that if Western culture is to survive at all, an understanding of how small elitist groups can destroy everything for the majority of people must become ingrained in Western culture. And Robert, you tell me you've recently been delving into an oft-cited but little understood scheme which goes by the name of the Club of Rome. Well, yes, um, it's been around for a long time. I'll get into the club um, in a, just a, a little bit of detail at the end of what I have to say here, but I found an article on the Club of Rome's website uh, written by one David Corton. And he is, just to give an overview of the article or the Club of Rome, of course, they're all pushing the globalist communist agenda, the collective versus the individual, and they're on the side of the, the bad guys, the collective. Um, they're do-gooders. They all couch their theories and political aspirations in all this language of flowery language that seems to appeal to emotion. I just wish somebody would save us from these people out there. But, you know, every educator, the mainstream media, our governments, they've all failed us. Everybody should know about these organizations, Club of Rome, uh, World Economic Forum, United Nations, 
uh, all the other NGOs out there trying to destroy Western society and our values and individualism. Interesting you should call them do-gooders, because that's something I'll be speaking to later in the show. <laughs> ah, good. You know, these people, if they, if they don't become the actual dictators and tyrants themselves, they aid, abet, and set the stage for dictators and tyrants, and we have to be aware of them. Now, as I have said on many occasions, our enemies are telling us explicitly that they want to destroy humanity. You just said it yourself. It's true. Although they've learned over the last hundred years or so to couch their true loathing for individual man and mankind in a sort of kumbaya-type language suitable only for uh, hippies and the impressionable youth. Uh, now, this article is entitled A Theory of Community. The Foundation of a 21st Century Economics for a 21st Century Civilization. Doesn't it always seem that every attempt to try and sell an old dysfunctional political doctrine, they'll use phrases like, it's 2021, or whatever the current year happens to be, right? You know, long-standing principles endure changing times. That's why they're called principles. I know. Yeah. Every form of collectivism, which is the political philosophy being espoused by Corton, by the way, um, was evil back in 1867 when Karl Marx published Das Kapital, and is just as evil today. Fascism was evil back in Mussolini's day, and is just as evil today. Trying to pawn off totalitarian concepts by rewording them, um, as Corton does in his article, and I'll get to that in a moment, does not make them any less destructive to man's life on this earth. Now, Corton begins his article by suggesting that because there are super-rich people like a Jeff Bezos, uh, typically found, by the way, in free and democratic countries, and that uh, there are very poor people, again, typically found in collectivist countries, by the way, that this inequity is the cause of economic collapse and will result in the extinction of man as a species. No kidding, that's what he's saying. This mm -hmm. absurd hyperbole is no doubt intended to summon up visceral emotions in his readers. Playing to fear and greed has worked for so many totalitarians in the past, they just keep on doing it. Corton, uh, his disparagement of money and the wealthy reveals uh, what can only be his own envy. Contrary to such a childish, ignorant, and superficial attitude towards money, philosopher Ayn Rand said, quote, So long as men live together on earth and need means to deal with one another, their only substitute, if they abandon money, is the muzzle of a gun. End quote. And Corton must be advocating for the muzzle of a gun. Rand went on uh, in another es essay, um, and I got this out of my Ayn Rand lexicon, a book I keep like a Bible. <laughs> and um, by the way, she could be speaking directly to Corton here. She says, so you think that money is the root of all evil? Have you ever asked what is the root of money? Money is a tool of exchange, which can't exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them. Money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value. Money is not the tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears or of the looters who take it from you by force. Money is made possible only by the men who produce. Is this what you consider evil? Like I say, she could be directly talking to Corton and any of the other people at the Club of Rome or the World Economic Forum. Now, let's take, um, let's take a sample of Mr. Corton's article to get a flavor for his argument. 
the, in favor for a global collectivist state. The challenge of organizing a human society of 7.8 million intelligent and self-aware people in symbiotic, and he puts in brackets here, mutually beneficial. It's like he's got to explain his terms <laughs> after calling everybody intelligent. Anyway, um, symbiotic relationship with Earth seems almost simple by comparison with the challenge that living Earth's community of life has mastered. In learning to manage ourselves in ways that work for ourselves and for Earth, we have much to learn from healthy, non-human living communities that meet their needs through continuous exchange between cells, organisms, and Earth's physical structures with no need for money, command and control institutions, or legal adjudication. Hmm. Unquote. I don't even I don't even I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got this out of it. Bees don't need money, institutions, nor laws, so therefore it must follow logically that neither should man. <laughs> After <laughs> That's all, exactly we're, right. we're only just animals. We are no different than the self-organizing plants and insects. This is so reminiscent of David Suzuki's comparison of man to fruit fly maggots back in 1972. Basically, you know, I study fruit flies, and I suddenly realized that basically we're all fruit flies. You're born as an egg, and you live in that egg environment, and your parents kind of cut out all the external crap that comes in and protect you and nourish you and clothe you and all that. But at some point, you hatch out and start crawling around and eating stuff on your own. You start reading, you start looking at the tube, you start doing all sorts of things. You hatch out as a maggot. And a maggot, a maggot can now crawl around. It's got two dimensions, and it can ingest food at its will and it defecates all over the environment and some other smaller maggots can even eat your defecation and get some nourishment out of it and uh, you know you you grow as you eat more nourishment and you molt you become a second level maggot you know a bigger maggot it even looks different and the bigger you get the more people you can or more maggots you can crush with your weight world overrun with yeah i mean most people in the world are content to stay as first or second level maggots and they establish their own little area and they, they crawl around there and that's fine and the, the guys that become 10th level maggots are really big wheels Corton and suzuki make a false extrapolation from the inanimate and the non-human to the human such an extrapolation cannot be done given human ethics and politics, concepts unique to man. Corton seems to be assuming that our nature is identical to that of rocks, rivers, carpenter ants, and halibut. He denies our nature as autonomous free agents who need to be able to exercise their free will, something not possessed by non-human species, and make rational decisions in their own self-interest. It is only with this freedom can an individual man provide for his own survival and pursue his own happiness. Corton, in his description of the uh, non-human world, makes frequent mention that they are self-organizing. But he blanks out the fact that people already self-organize without the use of force. It's implicit in the term self-organizing. That's That such yeah. organizations are done by the self with no need for central planners. We self-organize every day in our interactions with others. Only in rare circumstances does the odd sociopath interfere with the peaceful interactions of the vast majority of rational men. The sociopath is an anomaly. 
that we, by means of necessary force and self-defense, deter and separate from the vast majority of us who have no trouble getting along. Unfortunately, there are many sociopaths out there who often get away with tampering with the peaceful self-organization of men by making it seem that they're acting in our self-interest. Now, Corton continues, quote, Despite our failings, it appears we humans are the currently most advanced expression of life's evolutionary journey towards ever-increasing intelligent, self-aware agency. We have yet, however, to develop the wisdom and skills required to use this capacity in service to the health and well-being of Earth's community of life, on which our own well-being ultimately depends. Unquote. Really, what hubris? With his saying that we must use our self-aware agency in the service to the health and well-being of Earth's community of life, he means you must use your free will to choose to sacrifice yourself on the altar of Mother Gaia. And of course, if you do not, then wiser individuals, such as himself, must step in to ensure that you do. And how do they do that? Force. Your free choices must be confined only to those that fit his description of being compatible with the nature of Earth. And once again, he turns the truth on its head. It's been shown through um, William Forster Lloyd's The Tragedy of the Commons. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Milton Friedman talked about that a lot. That men, when allowed to own property, treat it better than they do when uh, than having to share property with others. Lloyd's example was the, uh, the common cattle grazing land in Britain. But another example might be children sharing a single glass of an ice cream soda with each having a straw. Knowing that there is a limited amount of soda, the two children compete viciously with each other to suck out the most soda in the quickest amount of time. If, however, each child is given his own glass of soda, he may choose to drink it all at once or he may even save some for a later time. This is the simple concept illustrated over and over again from the microcosm of children and soda to the macrocosm of nations, the tragedy of the commons. Now, the, the comparison of pre-Hugo Chavez Venezuela with post-Chavez Venezuela is striking as to how a self-organizing free people treat each other as opposed to how people treat each other in a top-down socialist utopia. Of course, there are countless other comparisons of a free and capitalist nation in the world of uh, Corton. North Korea versus South Korea. Communist China versus Taiwan. The Soviet East versus the Free West. And with each demonstration, people like Corton respond with the predictable, they were implementing socialism incorrectly. Gestapo. Guten Tag, Fräulein. Bonjour, Monsieur. Just a routine check. You live here alone? Huh? With my father. Oh. Anyone else? Well. Anyone else, Fräulein? Well, my uncle stays with us sometimes. Oh, uncle. And perhaps a few of his friends, yeah? Oh, Monsieur, is it necessary to search? You are hiding something? No, Monsieur. stay at a caravan park with 200 other caravans absolutely jason you can do that go for your life
Oh, that's great. Well, well, can a couple of my friends park their caravans in my backyard? And we can have like a mini holiday because of all the border closures. We'll stay local. <laughs> no, Jason. There'll be too many people in your home. 200 caravans is okay, but not a few. Okay, that's fine. Um, uh, can I play backyard cricket with my mates in my backyard? How many people, Jason? Um, 16? No, Jason. That's too many. Too many. Okay. Uh, well, can I go to the cricket and watch 22 men play cricket with 20,000 supporters watching along? Yes, of course you can do that. Don't be stupid, Jason. Right. Okay. Um, can I go to New South Wales? Yes, you can go to New South Wales whenever you want. Great. Or can I leave New South Wales? No, because no one will let you in. <laughs> Gordon concludes his lengthy article with a wish list, which I'll jump towards. Note that every single thing he wishes for calls for the initiation of force against peaceful people. And of course, force comes in many forms. Taxation, inflation, regulations, sin taxes, such as a carbon tax, and just plain old violence. You know, the kind we are seeing now with police officers arresting and beating up people who don't wear masks or attend church during this fake pandemic, etc. Now here's Corton's list. There's eight items. Number one, stopping the use of plastic bags. The goal is a circular economy in which nothing is wasted and nothing is depleted. Stop how, <laughs> I ask. By force, of course. That is so insane on its face. I'd like to see how he survives day to day and eating his food without having to deal with the waste that's created from him eating food. <laughs> of course. I guess he doesn't need a bathroom or a toilet. I guess that's the way <laughs> he lives. That would be a waste of good fertilizer, yeah. Yes. <laughs> He's going to truck that to China. <laughs> that's prob probably what he'd want to do with it, yeah. yeah. So, of course, how does he stop the use of plastic bags? By force. Forced through regulation of manufacturers, retailers, consumers, there's absolutely nothing wrong with plastic bags. The disposal of such a useful object is what is at issue, not the bag itself. And guess who the major polluter is when it comes to plastic bags, or any other f pollution for that matter? Communist China, the country Gordon undoubtedly wishes us to emulate. It's the tragedy of the commons again. Every communist country is dealing with that issue. So he says in his circular economy, nothing is wasted. By whose definition of waste? And he says nothing is depleted, he says. Well, I refer him to the tragedy of the commons. People take care of their private resources and property. Now, number two, providing more organic food options. Now, of course, this is doublespeak for the elimination, again, by force of law and regulation, of herbicides and pesticides, chemicals that have made it actually possible along with genetic engineering, to feed the very world he seems to care about. <laughs> you know, the lunacy. Number three, yeah. passing laws requiring corporations to act responsibly. Hmm. The goal is an economy in which all businesses are owned by and accountable to the people they serve. Now, this is a dictionary definition of fascism, where people may own property and corporations may still exist, but they do so only in service to the state, the community. Number four, ending war. That's a laudable yeah. goal. I can agree with that indeed, only that wars are invariably started by tyrannical collectivist countries. So instead of tritely saying ending war, Corton could accomplish the same goal by simply saying end collectivism. Boom, war's over. <laughs> Number five, incentivize the purchase of electric cars. Now, 
this one here is interesting. And I, I'm going to stick on the word incentivize because I happen to love a Tesla. I had an opportunity to drive a Tesla Model S and man, was I blown away. What a fantastic machine I invested in the company. There you go, public ownership. <laughs> anyway, governments incentivize with either a carrot or a stick. Both often require force, most often. The carrot is usually subsidies paid by taxes, and the stick is to make gasoline-powered vehicles more costly to operate through things like higher gas taxes or restricting their use. Number six, providing everyone with a guaranteed income. The goal is to assure everyone access to work that meets their material needs with dignity and satisfaction. Boy, doesn't that sound beautiful, Bob? Here it is, pure communism writ large. Provide everyone with an income, guaranteed. At whose expense? At whose expense? Corton obviously has no idea what money is, that it can't be printed out of thin air without being backed by productive effort, as Rand just said, right? This is basic economics. But what can we expect from such a man as Corton? Because, you know, he preceded his article, the one that I'm quoting from, with a quote from John Maynard Keynes, <laughs> the intellectual father of hyperinflation and creating something out of nothing. And, and, you know, not to mention that it is the nature of many of our fellow men when given money without having to produce for it often fall into a self-loathing malaise. There's no dignity in receiving welfare. Dignity lies in productive effort. It's as simple as that. Number seven, accepting all migrants fleeing social and environmental collapse. The goal is a world in which every place is a healthy place and every person has a place. Boy, doesn't that just sound great. Except... I thought you're going to fix all the social and environmental collapse. So where are they coming from? That it's still it's still nasty in their countries. The goal of Agenda 21, which we've talked about a lot, is the overtaking of the West by massive immigration of people to whom individual freedom has not been an influencing factor in their own cultures. They typically flee collectivist regimes or tribalistic cultures. Or, as is often the case today with the West becoming more welfare status, they're simply going from one welfare state to a more generous one like Canada. And rather than displace these billions of people, why not eliminate those factors in their parts of the world, preventing them from flourishing? And by the way, there's no threat of an environmental collapse. This is just another fair tactic outlined in Agenda 21, long since disproved by, guess what, science. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Number eight in the last one, assuring that every child is a wanted child. Well, again, doesn't that sound nice? Everybody's child is wanted. But where did you hear these words before? This type of phraseology is language of eugenicist Margaret Sanger and those who followed her in her footsteps. Those are these people advocating for late-term abortions and the murder of the newborn. And I'm not joking about that. There are states in the United States, democratically run, who are saying that it's okay to murder, and though of course it wouldn't be murder because they've made it legal, a child after it has been born. So this is what he's advocating. That's straight out of China, isn't it? Well, they're killing their people. Oh my God, I just read an article in the Epoch Times yesterday about a Chinese reporter in Hong Kong being threatened because she uncovered first-hand accounts of organ harvesting of Uyghur Chinese uh, while they're still alive and conscious. And it is a grim read. I'm telling you, that place is a mess. It's, it's, it's just like Nazi Germany, and we're living through it. And anybody who deals with China or any nation, certainly who deals with China, they shouldn't be. No civilized country should do, deal with that country at all. Now, Mr. Corton seems to be one of those people who can't see the trees for the forest. 
to them. Society and the community, the collective, is the indivisible unit of our polity. Individuals are expendable as long as the collective survives. His views are also those of the sociopaths who agree with population control, a despicable agenda pushed by the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the Club of Rome, and people like Bill Gates, amongst many, many others. And by the way, for an in-depth database of collectivists like this, I direct uh, our listeners to a website called discoverthenetworks.org. It lists the key individuals and organizations and how they interrelate. Mm -hmm. I'd also encourage people to read David Corton's article, which can be found on the website, as I say again, of the Club of Rome, of which he is a member. Now, to get to the Club of Rome, very briefly, the Club of Rome has been around since 1968. And here is a quote from one of their publications called The First Global Revolution, which will tell you exactly what they think of humanity despite their couching their goals in so much syrup. Quote, In searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap, which we have already warned readers about, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through a changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. Unquote. There you go. The Club of Rome despises humanity, wants to depopulate the earth and it's again they're telling you they're letting you know already in their writings and publications but how many people have heard of the club of rome you go to youtube and look up some of the club of rome videos or anything like that they, their views are less than ours sometimes you know and yet these people are major movers and shakers they're what uh, david suzuki wall would call a uh, 10th order maggots <laughs> now right. Just to finish off this section, Bob, I want to leave it on a bit of an uplifting note, as I try to do sometimes. Uh, let's contrast this kind of morbid advocacy for a global dictatorship to the life-loving motivation of a man like Elon Musk, the wealthiest man in the world, by the way, who came up by his wealth, honestly, as far as I know, although I do understand it was with the help of government subsidies, which as a businessman he accepted, but as an individual, he's denounced. He's denounced these subsidies, saying that they're not necessary, but because the government is offering them to his competitors, he has to take them. That's the business thing, right? Sure. He also, by the way, favors a universal basic income, but then again, you know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> now, Musk has tens of thousands of people working for him, requiring no force, no laws, no regulations, but out of a desire by each and every one of them to create, to produce, and to profit. Musk is a man who's using his wealth and organizational skills not to signal his virtue or to be anyone's savior, but to further his own personal dreams and build a future he can feel good about. Becoming a multi-planet species in space frank civilization, this is not inevitable. The sustainable energy future, I think, is largely inevitable, uh, but being space frank civilization is definitely not inevitable. People are mistaken when they think that technology just automatically improves. It does not automatically improve. 
It, it only improves if a lot of people work very hard to make it better. You know, and it, it almost seems, you know, listening to you and look at the different things you've done, that you've got this this unique double motivation on everything that I, I find so interesting. One is this um, desire to work for humanity's long-term good. The other is this desire to do something exciting, and it's. It feels like you, you feel like you need the one to drive the other. With, with Tesla, you want to have sustainable energy, so you make these super sexy, exciting cars to do it. You know, solar energy, we need to get there, so we need to make these beautiful roofs. You want to save humanity from bad AI, and so you're going to create this really cool brain-machine interface to give us all infinite memory and telepathy and so forth. And on Mars, it feels like what you're saying is, yeah, we need, we need to save. Humanity and have a have a backup plan, but also we need to inspire humanity, and this is this is a way to inspire. I think the, the value of building inspiration is, is very much underrated, no question.、Um, but I want to be clear. I, like, I'm not trying to be anyone's savior.、Uh, that is not the. I, I'm just trying to think about the future and not be sad. Beautiful statement. Today I'm going to talk about evil. I know this is a little controversial, but I think that the current paradigm that we're living in today was brought about by people who themselves are either sociopathic, psychopathic, or evil. The controversial thing that's happening right now, in my opinion, is that people who think they are doing good. Are actually doing evil. They are doing this thing, this virtue signaling thing, where it's a performative act to be good, rather than actually being good. And in my personal opinion, science is responsible. Technocracy is responsible for this. They have subdivided. Categorized, compartmentalized people's minds to the point where they are able to do evil in the name of good. We are far beyond being able to use facts and figures to convince people that what they're doing is wrong. They are ideologically possessed, and they are mentally ill. And the mental illness that they suffer from is evil. They are evil. If if we only had to deal with psychopaths and sociopaths and people without conscience, I believe we would be better off than we are today, because we would be able to recognize them and deal with them. They would be such a minority. They would be so aberrant that we would just step in there and rid them from our midst. Now, I'm not saying that psychopaths aren't a problem. They are. They're generally the leaders of all the evil people. Like, take for instance Bill Gates, who I think is a psychopath. Like, obviously, I I don't even know the man, and and I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but. 
from what I know, I would say that Bill Gates is a psychopath, like an apex predator psychopath. And all the people who work at his organization, who have ever sent him money, who have ever sat down in a room with him, who have never, who've had the power, but who have never stopped him, who have never blown the whistle on him, etc. All, all of his enablers, they are the problem. And they are evil because unlike Bill Gates himself, the apex predator psychopath who is operating as a broken, incomplete specimen of a human being, in my opinion, missing a conscience, constantly seeking to win a game, no matter what the price to other humans, Unlike him, the people who support him and surround him and don't stop him and work for him and kind of suspect something's wrong but don't do anything about it and keep drawing a paycheck from him and taking his money, uh, these people are evil because they know better. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And Robert, that was the amazing Polly, Polly St. George, speaking on March 27th to the nature of evil. And you know, to the extent that people do know better but act against their conscience and morality, I would agree that they are evil. Because evil is a consequence of a moral choice. But my first reaction to hearing Pauli St. George discuss the idea that all of the enablers of the sociopaths and psychopaths are evil was that chapter in Isabel Patterson's book, The God of the Machine, in which she makes the same observation made by Pauli but instead attributes the phenomenon to not people being evil, but to people being good. So, this comes from her book, The God of the Machine, which was first published in 1964, but this chapter, The Humanitarian with the Guillotine, I have referred to before, and it was written in 1943. And that's important to keep this in mind, because bear in mind, World War II had not yet ended when she wrote this, okay? And tell me how much of this reminds you of what you see going around us today. And I quote, Most of the harm in the world is done by good people and not by accident, lapse, or omission. It is the result of their deliberate actions, long persevered in, which they hold to be motivated by high ideals towards virtuous ends. This is demonstrably true, nor could it occur otherwise. The percentage of positively malignant, vicious, or depraved persons is necessarily small, or no species could survive if its members were habitually and consciously bent upon injuring one another. Destruction is so easy that even a minority of persistently evil intent could shortly exterminate the unsuspecting majority of well-disposed persons. Murder, theft, rape, and destruction are easily within the power of every individual at any time. If it is presumed that they are restrained only by fear of force, what is it they fear? Or who would turn the force against them if all men were of like mind? Certainly if the harm done by willful criminals were to be computed, the number of murderers, the extent of damage and loss, would be found negligible in the sum total of death and devastation wrought upon human beings by their kind. 
Therefore, it is obvious that in periods when millions are slaughtered, when torture is practiced, starvation enforced, oppression made a policy, as at present over a large part of the world, and as it has often been in the past, it must be at the behest of very many good people, and even by their direct action for what they consider a worthy object. When they are not the immediate executants, they are on record as giving approval, elaborating justification, or else cloaking facts with silence and discountancing discussion. <laughs> you know, so what I want to know, Robert, is how could Isabel Patterson have known about deplatforming and online censorship way back in 1943? You know, it's almost been 80 years, hasn't it? An entire lifetime, and she has identified the principles, again, upon which we all... Um, live. It's, a, it's an identifying principle of humanity that there are bad people out there, but in general, humanity is pretty decent, right? Right. And this is what I go, went on to say about principles. They stand the test of time. There's no need to couch it into flowery language or try to sell it, you know, as new and improved and that kind of a thing. You can pick up um, Isabel Patterson, uh, and I've read her book twice. It's such a, a profound book or um, any of the great philosophers and their principles, uh, while some of them may have gotten a few things incorrect now that we are, you know, progressed a little further, their principles have always stood the test of time. Yep. And, you know, she, she goes on, she says, obviously this could not occur without cause or reason. And here she makes it clear. And it must be understood in the above passage that by good people, we mean good people. Persons who would not on their own conscious intent act to hurt their fellow men, then there must be a very grave error in the means by which they seek to attain their ends. There must even be an error in their primary axioms to permit them to continue using such means. Something's wrong in the procedure somewhere. What is it? And then she begins to explain. The present war, and she's talking about World War II, of course, begun with a perjured treaty made by two powerful nations, Russia and Germany, would have been impossible without the internal political power, which in both cases was seized on the excuse of doing good to the nation. The lies, the violence, the wholesale killings were practiced first on the people of both nations by their own respective governments. Sound familiar? Yes, it may be said, and it may be true, that in both cases the wielders of power are vicious hypocrites, that their conscious objective was evil from the beginning. Nonetheless, they could not have come by the power at all, except with the consent and assistance of good people. That's exactly what Paulie was saying, right? Yep. Further, the principal political figures now wielding power in Europe, including those who have sold their countries to the invader, hello, that was your topic last week, Robert, mm -hmm. are socialists, ex-socialists, or communists, men whose creed is a collective good. Of course, Trudeau takes the pack here for us here in Canada, right? Then she asks a question. Why did the humanitarian philosophy of 18th century Europe usher in the reign of terror? It didn't happen by chance. It followed from the original premise, objective and means proposed. The objective is to do good to others as a primary justification of existence. The means is the power of the collective, and the premise is that Good is the collective. The root of the matter is ethical, philosophical, and religious, involving the relation of man to the universe, of man's creative faculty to his creator. 
The fatal divergence occurs in failing to recognize the norm of human life. Obviously, there's a great deal of pain and distress incidental to existence. Poverty, illness, and accident are possibilities which may be reduced to a minimum, but cannot be altogether eliminated from the hazards mankind must encounter. But these are not desirable conditions to be brought about or perpetuated. Ills are marginal. They can be alleviated from the marginal surplus of production, otherwise nothing at all could be done. Therefore, it cannot be supposed that the producer exists only for the sake of the non-producer, the well for the sake of the ill, the competent for the sake of the incompetent, nor any person merely for the sake of another. The great religions, which are also great intellectual systems, have always recognized the conditions of the natural order. They enjoin charity, benevolence, as a moral obligation to be met out of a producer's surplus. That is, they make it secondary to production, for the inescapable reason that without production, there could be nothing to give. By the way, she gets into this whole premise behind Christianity in a big way in another part of her book that I plan to look at again in the future, because it's a perspective that most people have just completely forgotten, uh, you know, Atheist and believer alike, let me tell you. You know, to that point, Bob, Ayn Rand, yeah. I think, touched on uh, charity, saying that a person who is charitable does so out of not necessarily a love for the other person's life, but a love of their own. They can't right. be charitable unless they love their own life. And to that point again, I bring up Elon Musk, who has said that in his twilight years, he absolutely intends to give away half his fortune, Right. Because he's right now he's using it, he's investing it, he's creating a future that he wants to see. But later on, because he loves his own life, he has no qualms with giving away to charity a lot of his fortune. Yeah. And that's a, that's a proper way to do it, too. He's not doing it out of duty. He's not doing it out of shame or guilt or to be virtuous and to signal it to the world, you know. He just, when asked the question, like, you're the richest man on earth, you know, what are you going to do with your money? And he's telling it, he's investing it right now to, to, to envision a future or to make real a future that he envisions. And then later on, I mean, he's got no need for it. And he's, you know, he'll give it to charity. Of course. And you have to, it has to come out of self-interest. How else can you relate to others? Yeah. Just to continue and conclude here, she writes again, If the primary objective of the philanthropist, his justification for living, is to help others, his ultimate good requires that others shall be in want. His happiness is the obverse of their misery. If he wishes to help humanity, the whole of humanity must be in need. The humanitarian wishes to be a prime mover in the lives of others. He cannot admit either the divine or the natural order by which men have the power to help themselves. The humanitarian puts himself in the place of God. What kind of world does the humanitarian contemplate as affording him full scope? It could only be a world filled with bread lines and hospitals in which no one retained the natural power of a human being to help himself or to resist having things done to him. This is what we're seeing today around us all the time now. Yeah. And that is precisely the world that the humanitarian arranges when he gets his way. When a humanitarian wishes to see to it that everyone has a quart of milk, how is he to contrive that he shall have all the milk to distribute? 
Remember, remember Reagan's statement, the government that gives you everything you want first has to take everything you have, <laughs> right? And she goes, there is only one way, and that is by the use of the political power in its fullest extension. Hence, the humanitarian feels the utmost gratification when he visits or hears of a country in which everyone's restricted to ration cards. Where subsistence is doled out, the end has been achieved, the general want and a superior power to quote-unquote relieve it. The humanitarian, in theory, is the terrorist in action. The proposal to care for the needy by the political means gives the power to the politicians to tax without limit, and there is absolutely no way to ensure that the money will go where it was intended to go. The government is thus supposed to be empowered to give security to the needy. It cannot. What it does is seize the provision made by private persons for their own security, thus depriving everyone of every hope or chance of security. It can do nothing else. Those who do not understand the nature of the action are like savages who cut down a tree to get the fruit. They do not think over time and space as civilized men must yep. think. End quote. Wow. And you know, I, after hearing that, I go, how deeply ironic. We began with David Corton's A Theory of Community, the foundation of a 21st century blah, 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 and he's proposing a civilization in which individual thought and action must be prohibited. And never let us forget that a nation is civilized only to the degree that the initiation of force by one individual or group against another is both condemned and prohibited. And everything these people are advocating is exactly the opposite. It requires the initiation of force for every, every slight minutia of their action plan. Yes. What is the difference between a sociopath, a psychopath, and a narcissist? Here to answer this intense question is Dr. Romani. Help us out here. Well, it's, you know, again, there's a lot of overlap, but the fact is a lot of people are using these terms interchangeably. Mm. They, and they, should they be? Pad, they say, no, they no. shouldn't. They're okay. different things, okay? One rule of thumb to remember right off the bat, every psychopath is narcissistic, but not every narcissist is psychopathic. Make sense? There, there's, there's your key difference. A narcissist is somebody who lacks empathy, is grandiose, is entitled, is constantly seeking validation, is arrogant. Um, it's a disorder of self-esteem and they have trouble regulating their self-esteem. But when a narcissist does a bad thing, they feel a fair amount of guilt and shame. More shame than guilt, frankly, because they're concerned about how other people view them. Shame is a public emotion. So they don't like being viewed negatively in the public eye or by other people. That's where the shame comes from. But they'll feel a little bad. Like if they cheat on their wife, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Psychopaths are a different animal. They're all of those things except no guilt, no shame. Wow. They don't feel remorse when they do something bad. Wow. So they're, they're great um, serial killers. Oh hired assassins, um, people who are gonna go in and literally sort of gut a business. These are your guys, they're like, I don't, I don't care who gets hurt. They'd say that and they'd mean it. Okay, where a narcissist is like, I hope no one gets hurt, okay? The difference between the psychopath and the sociopath is the one where most people get confused because the sociopath is a lot like the psychopath. They do bad things and they don't care, okay? Here's the key difference. A psychopath is born 
and a sociopath is made. Mm. Okay, that's the key. So a psychopath, in fact, we know in the research on psychopathy, which has also been called antisocial personality disorder in our diagnostic manual, these are people who are actually believed to have slightly different autonomic nervous systems. Our autonomic nervous system is actually that part that holds our sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight and flight system. So when our autonomic nervous system for a normal person gets charged up, which it would if we broke a rule, if we did something embarrassing or rude, if we ran through a red light, our heart starts racing. Mm -hmm. We sweat, our, our pupils get wide, we look around because we're afraid of the consequence. A psychopath doesn't have that same kind of arousal. That's why they're able to lie on lie detector tests. That's how they get away with it. They don't have that same kind of arousal. So where you or I may go on a roller coaster, feel that sense of excitement, we need to get that arousal in a good way. We don't like feeling it when we do something wrong. They don't feel it. So they do they get stressed? No, not in the same way. So if they're driving, because mm -hmm. if I'm driving mm -hmm. and I see police sirens coming behind me, I mean, it is a full on, oh, oh yeah. my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to get pulled over. But a psychopath would see that and go, oh, I'm going to get pulled over. Well, this could be. They could have a dead body in the trunk and they wouldn't, they wouldn't change. And so the they pull over, they get the ticket and they don't care. No, they don't care. If evil people cannot be defined by the illegality of their deed or the magnitude of their sins, then how are we to define them? The answer is by the consistency of their sins. While usually subtle, their destructiveness is remarkably consistent. This is because those who have crossed over the line are characterized by the absolute refusal to tolerate the sense of their own sinfulness. More than anything else, it is the sense of our own sinfulness that prevents any of us from undergoing a similar deterioration. A predominant characteristic of the behavior of those I call evil is scapegoating. Because in their hearts they consider themselves above reproach, they must lash out at anyone who does reproach them. They sacrifice others to preserve their self-image of perfection. Evil, then, is most often committed in order to scapegoat. And the people I label as evil are chronic scapegoaters. They attack others instead of facing their own failures. As life often threatens their self-image of perfection, evil people are often busily engaged in hating and destroying that life, usually in the name of righteousness. The fault, however, may not be so much that they hate life as that they do not hate the sinful part of themselves. What is the cause of this failure of self-hatred? This failure to be displeasing to oneself which seems to be the central sin at the root of the scapegoating behavior of those I call evil. The cause is not, I believe, an absent conscience. There are people, both in and out of jail, who seem utterly lacking in conscience or superego. Psychiatrists call them psychopaths or sociopaths. Guiltless, they not only commit crimes, but may often do so with a kind of reckless abandon that is not particularly characterized by scapegoating. This is hardly the case with those I call evil. Utterly dedicated to preserving their self-image of perfection, they are unceasingly engaged in the effort to maintain the appearance of moral purity. They worry about this a great deal. They are acutely sensitive to social norms and what others might think of them. Like Bobby's parents, they dress well, go to work on time, 
pay their taxes, and outwardly seem to live lives that are above reproach. The words image and appearance and outwardly are crucial to the understanding of the morality of the evil. While they seem to lack any motivation to be good, they intensely desire to appear good. Their goodness is all on a level of pretense. It is, in effect, a lie. This is why they are called the people of the lie. <laughs> Remind you of anyone or anything? The concept of virtue signaling? The keeping up appearances, nature of all of the folks around us who will take the vaccine, will wear the masks, will do the social distancing, will gather together in mobs to shame those of us who won't. They are literally dedicated to the lie. All they care about is appearing just. You know, Bob, what you were just quoting from Isabel Patterson um, sort of dovetails into what we discussed on Lax We Show, the survey about how many Canadians actually think that the provincial premiers and the, the prime minister are doing a great job and how many people want have no objection to people's rights being suspended in this so-called pandemic. And it turns out, of course, that it was um, a majority. In some cases, as much as two-thirds of people have total disrespect for the individual and would do anything for his own health and safety, including locking up, imprisoning, fining people for, for things like not wearing a mask or coming too close to them in a, a shopper's drug mart lineup. Like we said last week, it is the minority, the sociopaths out there. And they have to be sociopaths because they're pushing a philosophy which is antithetical to individuals in society. It starts off with the writers and the philosophers, like the philosopher Hegel and his dialectic. And people basically said, oh, that's the end of philosophy. Hegel's got it right. The individual owes his life to the state. So that one man, Hegel, influenced so many people who followed him, right? The followers. You got your intellects, the really, really small minority create the agenda. And then you've got a bulk of followers, right? And then on the other end of that spectrum, you have people like you and I who are critical thinkers. And we protest, again, a further smaller minority. We speak out because there's a lot of people out there, and that survey showed it, that don't like what's going on. But they don't do anything about it. It takes just a handful of people like you and I, Amazing Polly, Polly St. George, uh, Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, Frank Vaughn, uh, Maxime Bernier, in Canada at least, you know, Mark Friesen, Salim Mansur. You can almost name, you know, all of the people in this group, right? But it turns out to be a really, really small minority. Always is. And, and, and I think that that's what people have to understand is that you can either be a follower or you can be a, a critical thinker. But in either case, you really got to do something. Otherwise, you're just going to be run over, just like so much fodder, cannon fodder. And that, that could be quite literal, too. So if I return to the question I asked at the beginning of the show, are all these people nuts? Are, are, are the very ambitious, to the extent that they're instituting fascism, crazy, evil, both, or none of the above? Well, I, there was a, I looked up sociopath prior to this conversation. 
Yeah, uh, I remember you and I have been down this sociopath before. <laughs> yes, a, a number of years ago. Yeah. Uh, mainly because, you know, when I was studying psychology, I got a degree in it. There was somewhat of a distinction between psychopathy and uh, sociopathy. A sociopath is basically one in a hundred women can show signs of this personality disorder and three in a hundred men. So about 2% of the population, 2% of Canadians, that would be uh, three quarters of a million people. And we don't see the actions of three quarters of a million people being sociopathic, right? Right. So in other words, they, they may be sociopathic, but they don't act on it, at least not that we see or that they are accountable for. A very, very small percentage of that very, very small percentage are the ones who are the criminals and are the ones who are <laughs> the politicians <laughs> and the academics who are pushing for this nonsense. Like you said, the stupid people out there, they're not stupid though. They're just sociopaths. They don't care. They want power. They don't care who they have to step on to get it. You know, it's interesting. Ayn Rand comments on the whole idea of evil and what it is. And she says, that evil is not a value. It's an absence. It's a negation. Evil is impotent and has no power except that which we let it extort from us. It's amazing how that message comes out in everything. Everything Pauli St. George said, everything we've been talking in philosophy. And strangely enough, everything that comes out of the mythology and stories of religion, even if you're talking about vampires, and if you're talking about the devil, you have to consent. They need your support. Yeah. And Ayn Rand says the spread of evil is the symptom of a vacuum. Whenever evil wins, it is only by default, by the moral failure of those who evade the fact that there is no compromise on basic principles. The truly and deliberately evil men are a small minority. It is the appeaser who unleashes them on mankind. It is the appeaser's intellectual abdication that invites them to take over. When a culture's dominant trend is geared to irrationality, the thugs win over the appeasers. When intellectual leaders fail to foster the best in the mixed, unformed, vacillating character of people at large, the thugs are sure to bring out the worst. When the ablest men turn into cowards, the average men turn into brutes. Isn't that something we see, like even in the stores, just like what you've been saying? Oh, it's true, and you've covered it before with the people's reactions to people who just don't conform with mask wearing. You know, one of those Polly St. George clips featured a fellow named M. Scott Peck. I looked up M. Scott Peck on YouTube because I wasn't familiar with his work, I'm ashamed to say. And the YouTube video is called M. Scott Peck, People of the Lie, The Hope for Healing Human Evil, The Open Mind, PBS 1983. He was writing a book about evil, right? And he decided, well, he'll start off by asking people what their definition of evil is. And he asked his wife and his daughters, they gave their definition. Then he asked his son, his eight-year-old son, and he goes, Daddy, that's an easy question. Evil is live, spelled backwards. <laughs> oh, wow. That's actually profound. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a great note to end the show on. So once again, and it's beginning to sound like a broken record, it's up to us and people like us that you mentioned earlier, Robert, to provide and promote the alternative narrative, the one that is open to the truth and not closed to it. Do your part by not only sharing programming like this and spreading the word in any way you can, but by also making sure that you join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be
How many are not under the age of 30? 20-somethings? Let me hear from the 20-somethings. Yeah. These are the dumbest people I've ever met in my life. Not personally, just as a group. I know they're dumber than people my age. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't have any child-proof caps. You dropped a Coke bottle, it didn't bounce, it shattered. Our parents let us play with guns and knives and fireworks. You know what happened to the dumb kids? They didn't make it. You guys grew up in a world that's child-proofed and padded. All the dumb ones lived. <laughs> a lot of our terms don't mean anything. I don't want to sound like a broken record. You know what that means, right? People under 30 never own a record player. They don't know what that means. They don't know what that means. They don't know what that means. <laughs> you still don't. <laughs>